Good morning. My name is Amy Foster. I'm part of Team Ezra, and it's my great privilege to join you this morning. And I couldn't help but think, how lucky are we to get to be here together on Valentine's Day? I got to wear my red pants, and y'all are wearing your red and your pink. And we get to start out eating cake and cookies and candy. That's my favorite kind of day. And how wonderful is it that God has ordained it that we are studying these two chapters in Ezra today because these chapters are about devotion. They're all about Ezra's devotion for God and God's law, and that's a perfect topic for Valentine's Day. I was reminded years ago, um, just a few days before Valentine's, I was standing in line at a local candy store um, waiting to buy candy for my kids, and the line was so long it went all the way through the store and out the door onto the sidewalk. So I had lots of time standing there visiting with the people around me. There was an older gentleman waiting in line in front of me, very distinguished, and he was holding in his hand a beautiful old heart-shaped candy box, you know, the kind we all love to receive full of chocolates. But this box was vintage. It was beautiful, faded red velvet. It was covered with flowers that looked like flowers you'd see on somebody's hat, all faded pink and mauve velvet. And after a little while, I just couldn't resist, and I had to ask him about the box. So he turned around and he faced me very squarely and he said, more than 40 years ago, I bought this box of chocolates for my Valentine. And she loved it and she saved it. So for every year since, I've been filling the same box with chocolates for my same Valentine. Is that the best story? I loved it. I was moved by it. As this man reached the front of the line, the lady behind the counter called him by name. She knew him. She'd filled this box for him before. She knew what all the wife's favorite chocolates were. She filled it and gave it to him, and as he walked away, she looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, we have been filling that box for his wife year after year after year. Isn't he devoted? Isn't he devoted? And I stood there with tears in my eyes thinking, devotion is attractive. It's attractive. We don't know him. We don't know his wife. We don't know their story. And we're standing here teary-eyed just to witness his devotion. And I had to think, we're devoted to lots of things. And the way we live in this world, the things we expend our time and our energy and our effort on, that teaches the world what we're devoted to, doesn't it? But when I look around, I have to be honest, I'm not inspired by some of that devotion. And in my opinion, some of that devotion is not necessarily directed towards something worthy of devotion. But his love for his wife and for their traditions, that was a worthy object of devotion. And what we're going to see in Ezra today, Ezra's devotion goes one place. His devotion is to the word of the Lord, to the honor and reputation of his God, and that is worthy. And when we see devotion like that, it's inspiring. It inspires me. The first time I read um, Ezra, I was kind of overwhelmed with two themes, and I thought they were both so amazing. I'm sure you've noticed them also. This repetition of the term, the gracious hand of God, was over them. You read that about eight times in this section of the history books here, and I thought, that's wonderful. I want that. How do I get the gracious hand of God on my life? The other theme that I was just um, moved by was this theme of Ezra's devotion. And we put this on the top of your outline for today, characterized by the verse that we see in chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. 
That's Ezra, and that kind of devotion, it's attractive. It's attractive to me, and it's attractive to the world. And this idea of God's gracious hand covering us, that's attractive too, and that is appealing um, to the world. So as I studied it a little more, I started seeing this link, this connection between those two themes. And, you know, we're studying today, and most of you are probably using an NIV translation, but if you'll read some other translations... Um, they'll actually change the punctuation in verse 9 and 10, and they'll link those, and some of them will show us that connection, and it will read like this. For the gracious hand of his God was on him because Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching the decrees and laws in Israel. So we see a great link there between Ezra's devotion to God's law and the gracious hand of God covering his life. And that's really the link I want us to look at today and watch that pattern playing out. But we can't talk about this covering of God's grace without acknowledging by God's definition, we don't earn his grace. We never have, we never do, and we never will. His grace is freely given to us. So I don't at all want to communicate a message that he's receiving grace because he's devoted, because God gives us that grace. I do want to suggest the possibility that the grace is abundant and it's overflowing and it's just beyond measure in response to Ezra's devotion. Because all through these two chapters, we're going to see this connection of Ezra showing great devotion and God responding by placing his gracious hand over them. So that's the connection I want us to look at today. Uh, The theologians really believe that that idea, the gracious hand of God, has two meanings, and sometimes they're overlapping. Um, One meaning is that it implies God's protection over a person or a group, and we definitely see that here. A second meaning that we also see here, it means God is working out his purposes through a person and through a group, and that's exactly what we've been studying for weeks. That's God's providence, working out all circumstances um, to accomplish God's purposes, and in this instance, we absolutely see that. When it says the gracious hand of God is on him, it's all to accomplish his purpose of bringing his remnant people back to Israel, bringing them back to Jerusalem to satisfy his promises to them and to ultimately bless the world through them when Jesus Christ comes through them. So we see God's gracious hand protecting them and bringing about his purposes. So chapter 7 begins um, with some tricky words here. The tricky words are after these things. After these things during the reign of Artaxerxes. You need a little history because what they haven't told you is after these things means 57 years later. If you were with us last week in chapter 6, we studied after Haggai um, comes to the people and Tells them, you know, consider your ways, finish this job. They rise up and they finish building the temple. And it's a great spiritual high point. Now we have after these things during the reign of Artaxerxes. So you need to know 57 years have passed. Uh, The temple was completed in 515 when Darius was still king. But on your verse sheet we've included a timeline so you can keep it all straight. You can see that after Darius reigns, his son Xerxes reigns for a little more than 20 years. And we gave you an encouragement last week to go home and read the book of Esther. It's an amazing story. That occurs during the time of Xerxes. And after Xerxes, his son takes the throne, Artaxerxes. So that's what's happened between chapter 6 and chapter 20, I mean, and chapter 7 after 57 years. 
So the other thing I want to remind you about, we learned last week through looking at Haggai and Zechariah um, that things were not so great in their, um, in their worship experience with God. They were, they were waning a little bit and losing their enthusiasm, and that's why they hadn't completed the temple, and so they are corrected there. And in the weeks to come, and the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more of it acknowledged that they had become rather lax and rather um, rote in their worship experience at this point. And so in these 57 years, since that last high point of the temple has been rebuilt, all the other rebuilding work has stopped. You know, God sent them back to reinstitute worship, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish themselves as a nation. They were to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were to rebuild their city. And they've stopped all of that. They seem to be content to have the temple restored. Um, so we'll know from later things that we'll read that their commitment to strict obedience to God is really diminishing at this point, And that's evidenced by some pretty significant sin in their lives. And we'll also see when we study Nehemiah in the next few weeks, they are desperately in need of teachers, teachers of the law who can bring them back to um, practicing God's um, law, to following him with great and loving obedience. So after 57 years, after these things, the people are in need of a spiritual revival. They need for God to restore their religious fervor and their religious community. And they need a life of devotion so that they could fulfill their purpose and show the world who their God is. Now, maybe you're thinking like I am, wow, we kind of see that pattern in them a lot, don't we? This is the second or third time. Last week, Deb talked about it. One step forward, two steps back. They make all this progress, and we see a great spiritual high, and then the next thing we know after these things, they have lost their enthusiasm, and that happens. And, and maybe you're thinking, how does it happen? Well, we have to speculate a little bit, but in 57 years, um, what happens? In 57 years, one thing that came to my mind is people have died. People who experience some of these great high points, these amazing experiences of God coming in and putting his hand of providence and working out his way, those people have died and they're no longer there giving the testimony of God's faithfulness. So that's one thing that could have contributed to this. I also had to think many of these people had been born in Jerusalem. 57 years, maybe they never lived in Babylon. They never lived during the time when they were separated from God's temple and from being able to follow his laws and live in Israel. And it's certainly possible that if they've grown up with access to this temple here in Jerusalem their whole life, that they might not appreciate it quite as much. So those are real possibilities. And that happens in our lives too. We become complacent in our worship when, and when we don't listen to the voices of God's faithfulness around us, we can take steps backwards too. And there's one other possibility there. Um, the Levites are supposed to teach the law. And it's really interesting. In chapter 2, when the very first group, they left Babylon and they went back to Jerusalem, and we saw our first genealogy, our first long list of difficult names, right? And in those names, they numbered the people from the tribes, and the Levites, the teachers of the law, were significantly underrepresented in that list. Among all the people going back, 1.5% of the returnees were Levites. So we see, for whatever reason, we don't know why, there weren't that many teachers of the law who went back also. So I think we can consider that all of those things had an impact on this generation. And ladies, I want you to think all through this lesson, one generation makes a difference. 
One generation without teachers. One generation without people living lives of devotion. One generation where we stop giving the testimony of who God is and how he acts. One generation can change everything. So that's where they are here 57 years later. So chapter 7 opens with a preview. It's a little bit confusing because they give you 10 verses here that kind of summarize everything that's going to happen in in the next two chapters. But it opens with a preview, and that's where we're going to start. But I'm going to tell you it opens with a long list of difficult names, and I'm not going to read them out loud, okay? This is the genealogy, the lineage of Ezra. And it's important that we know a few things about this list of names. It's important that you know the list is not complete. There are many generations generations that are skipped here. It would have been a much longer list, and most of the theologians believe they've abbreviated the list and just put the important prominent names in here, so you need to know that. But the important thing is how this list ends. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, down to the end, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. That is the important thing here. Ezra is in the direct lineage of Ezra the chief priest, I mean of Aaron the chief priest. That means he's from the tribe of Levi. That means Ezra is called by God to teach. This is what gives authority to his teaching. He didn't just sign up to be a teacher. God ordained it before Ezra was born. And this is what gives authority to his teaching. The role of the Levite and the teacher is so important. I've included this on your verse sheet. Back when Aaron was the first high priest and all of these orders and divisions within Israel were being set up, Leviticus 10.11 says this is the charge to Aaron. You must teach the Israelites all the decrees Excuse me. All the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. That's what Aaron and all Aaron's descendants were supposed to be supposed to do. That was their role. And then in Deuteronomy 33, before they're actually coming into the promised land and all taking their place, this is the charge that Moses gives. He's talking to the, he's talking about the tribe of Levi. And he says, Levi, he teaches your precepts to Jacob and your laws to Israel. So that was the calling. If you were a Levite, you were a teacher of the law. And that also meant that you had detailed knowledge of the law. Your job was to know it so well and preserve it and protect it and sustain it through the generations to come. So right from the start, we see from this genealogy, Ezra's Ezra's task was important. His calling from God to teach God's word was important. And that's the Ezra who's coming up from Babylon. And then it tells you um, in these first ten verses about Ezra coming up with a group that's coming with him. So read with me. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra... Uh, came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. 
So right from the start, we understand the story. Ezra, with a group of Israelites, they are leaving Babylon and they are returning to Jerusalem, just like the group that preceded them with Zerubbabel. But it's a second group and it's years later. So that's the summary. And we can see here that his purpose is to rebuild the spiritual life of the people, the spiritual identity of the Israelites who have returned. That's why Ezra's going back, and those are his priorities. But right off the bat, we recognize the most important thing in these passages is the character of Ezra, who he is. And ladies, it's important because it's a character, it's a pattern of behavior that we can all copy, that we can all try to emulate in our own lives. A devoted follower of God is like Ezra, and a devoted follower of God places priority on God's law. That's first on your outline. And that verse, verse 10 right there, is really the key verse to all of these chapters. This is one of the best examples to follow in scripture. Ezra does devotes himself to three things. Look at it. It's to the study of the law, to the observance of the law, which means obedience, practicing the law, and then to teaching the law. And this idea of devoting himself, that means he set his heart firmly. He was resolutely determined and intent. I think that's so important. Nowhere in here do we see this idea that he's just doing his job because he was born a Levite. This isn't just dialing it in and doing his job. It's fully embracing his calling. And his calling was to be so devoted to God's law so that he could teach it. The other important thing in that pattern that we have there is the order. The order that he's um, addressing God's law. Look at it. We're the same way. We have to know God's law before we can try to be obedient to it. That's why we're here today. Because every day when we open our Bibles and read this, we learn something of how God wants us to interact with the world and how he wants us to interact with him. So first you have to know God's law before you can be obedient. And then you have to practice it, don't you? Day in, day out, over and over and over again. We have to practice obedience. And when we practice obedience, then we start teaching the people around us. Then we start teaching with the way we live our lives. And that's when our teaching has authority and integrity. When the people around us see that we're practicing it every day in our lives. So that's an order that's important. I hope you'll remember that and hold on to that. Um, Learn God's word, be obedient to God's word, and then teach God's word. And in case you're thinking, well, I don't have to worry about that last part. You're up there on the teaching team, Amy. You have to teach it. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. I'm going to tell you that we are all teachers. We teach the world what we're devoted to. We teach the world what we're passionate to. We teach the world what we believe in and what we put our hope in. We teach it every day. And we all teach with our whole lives. There's this great expression in education. It says, the teacher is the text. That means students learn so much more from their teachers than just what they read out of the textbooks. They're watching the teacher every day, seeing how she interacts with people, seeing how the teacher handles frustration and difficulty. The teacher is the text, and the same is true for each of us. We are the text, and the way we honor God's law and practice obedience to God's law teaches the world around us. So I want you to think about that. Does your life teach devotion to God and devotion to God's laws? We're going to see Ezra's devotion. We've already seen it there and how he set his heart um, to study and obey God's law. But we also see his devotion to God's law and his interaction with the king, don't we? Look back at verse 6 there. It says that um, the king had granted him everything that he had asked. 
everything that he asks. And later we're going to read the king's letter that lists off all the things that he's granted. If you took the time this week to go back and read Esther, you'll learn a little bit more about this idea of approaching the king with a request. Um, that, That was a bold and scary thing. First, you've got to be in a good position with the king to even enter his presence and put a request before him. And you'll learn in the book of Esther, if you come before the king with a request that he doesn't like, he can kill you. That's the power that a king had. So uh, we know that Ezra has some kind of good relationship with the king, good standing before the king, that he's able to go before him and make a request. But it's not a personal request, is it? It's a request to take this group of people back to Jerusalem to inquire about God's law. Is God's law being honored in Jerusalem? That is what Ezra goes before the king um, and the request that he makes. And we see that that is such a huge priority in his life, and that's his devotion. He's devoted to it personally, and he wants Israel nationally to be devoted to honoring God's law. So that's the request he makes to the king. It shows his devotion, and God responds by covering the king's response with grace. We see the gracious hand of God there. Read with me in chapter 7, verse 12. This is the king's letter. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hands. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Okay, now drop down to verse 21. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates. Remember, these are the guys who were oppressing them and causing great difficulty for them in the last few weeks that we studied. All the treasurers of trans-Euphrates, I order them to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at the house of God. And you, Ezra, In accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Well, that is an amazing evidence of the gracious hand of God. The king's decree looks a lot like two other king's decrees that we've seen as we've studied Ezra. Um, It's a pagan king 
ordering things in such a way that the purposes of God are going to be fulfilled. So I made a list of all the things the king granted. I just summarized that. Any Israelite in Babylon who wants to leave and go back to Jerusalem may go. You may take silver and gold. You may gather it from the king and his advisors. You may gather it from the people of Babylon, and you may gather it from your own people who are here. You may use this as a payment to purchase everything you need to offer sacrifices in God's temple. Um, Then you have the freedom to make your own decisions about what to do with any wealth that's left over. The people of Trans-Euphrates, the people who have been giving you such difficulty, they're ordered to provide whatever else you need to worship in your temple. They're ordered that they can't tax the priests, the Levites, all the temple servants. And this was interesting. Ezra was given political power to appoint judges and magistrates to rule over the remnant people. They were given political autonomy when they went back. That was huge. And then, the biggest of all, the pagan king who doesn't really believe in Yahweh God orders and commissions Ezra, go back and teach the law of God. How crazy is that? That is miraculous providence. It's the gracious hand of God moving a pagan king to advance God's purposes. This is the first time in the chapter we're going to see this pattern where first they show you Ezra's devotion to God, to honoring his law, and then God's response by covering him with his gracious hand. Um, Of all the requests Ezra could have made to the king, his request is to go back and see that God's law is being honored. I think that's devotion, and I think we see God responding beautifully to it. Now I want you to read Ezra's response to this letter. This is just two little short verses, but it's packed with so much significance here. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up for me. I think we see Ezra doing something in these two verses that's so important in a life that's devoted to God. We see Ezra taking time to stop and reflect on his experiences and to recognize God's activity. He's recognizing the gracious hand of God in his life. And we all have to do this. We have to examine our lives and identify where God has worked. I think he doesn't just say, okay, wow, this is a big job, let's get going. He stops and he praises God and he looks to see where God has been at work. There's this great expression, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, That's what a lot of philosophers think and I would agree with that. I would say in this experience we see the unexamined life doesn't reveal the gracious hand of God. If we don't stop and reflect and look where we've been and see God's work, we're missing out here. So I think that's a great um, example of devotion to God to stop and examine our lives. That's what Ezra does. And the response, God's gracious response, is to give him courage. I was encouraged. I took courage. He had this huge task ahead of him, a big, dangerous job. And when he stops and recognizes God's hand is on this, he takes courage. And he said it was God who put it in the king's heart to grant this request. It was God who caused the king to extend favor to me. It was God. Do you stop and look at your circumstances and say, oh, it was God. 
That's what we do in our praise time, and that's what's so important. And a heart that is devoted to God is going to stop and look for those opportunities to recognize God's gracious hand. And the response is courage. It's courage to keep going, courage to do the thing over and over again the next day, courage to continue to be obedient, courage to tackle whatever God is asking you to tackle. I want to tell you why I think this is important. I think we all have a responsibility to teach the world who God is, and I think this is one of our greatest teaching tools. Um, If you're a career educator, if you're a teacher up here, when you study how to teach, one of the things you learn right away is people learn best from stories. They learn from stories because they can easily relate to it. They can understand how I can take that principle and apply it to my own life. So when we take time to reflect on our lives and to identify God's activities, then we have a story to tell, and it's a story that brings courage to other people. And these are the stories we tell that affects the next generation. These are the stories we tell that are so important. And we see over and over again in Ezra, and we're going to see it in Nehemiah, God is showing them who he is. He is a rebuilder of everything that's broken. That's who God consistently is when we said the letter R, the restorer, the rebuilder. That's who he is. And I think most of us in this room, I'm assuming because we're here at a Bible study, most of us have had the experience where God has restored us to a proper relationship with him. You know, scripture tells us that we all have sin in our life and that separates us from a holy God. And God's chief work in our life is to restore us to a great relationship with him. That's why bringing Jesus into the world was so important. He came into the world and lived in flesh so he could have sympathy with us, but he lived a perfect and a holy life. In spite of that, he paid the sacrifice for death. He died on the cross to save us so that if we put our faith in him, he could restore our relationship with God. That's the first great rebuilding work that God does in our lives. And I'm hoping he's done it for all of us here. But he doesn't stop there. He is the rebuilder of everything broken. And he wants us to live life with him, trusting him to rebuild what is broken in our lives. So I want us to do something a little different today. And you're going to have to be bold and you're going to have to be brave, okay? And it's hard because you're all spread out. Um, I want you to take a moment and reflect on your life. I'm really hoping we've all had that experience where God has rebuilt our relationship with him and, and we are his children and we call ourselves Christian. Outside of that relationship, I want you to think about your life and I want you to think if you've ever had an experience of having something terribly broken, terribly destroyed, that in no way you could put back together on your own. Maybe it's a relationship or a family structure, or a financial disaster, or hopes, or dreams, something that is so completely broken. And I want you to look back and see, do I see the gracious hand of God? Did he come back into that situation and rebuild something? Because God tells tells us he's the rebuilder of everything broken. And I'm going to be honest with you, God does rebuild. He doesn't always rebuild in the method or the manner that we would choose. He doesn't always rebuild according to our script, and he rarely rebuilds according to our time frame. But he does rebuild because he's a creative God, and that means he can make something from nothing. So I'm going to testify in front of you today. I have had 
big pieces of my life that have been completely, utterly destroyed. And I despaired and thought they would never be rebuilt again. And God entered those circumstances, and he rebuilt those things. And I want you to take a second, and I want you to gather your courage. And if that is your testimony, I'd want you to do something bold. I want you to stand up right where you are and just stand up with me for a few seconds. Okay, here we go. This is not going to be everybody's experience, and that's okay. Okay, God is mighty to save. This is amazing. Okay, stay standing, and I want everybody who's here to look around the room for a moment because we're teaching right here. We're teaching with our testimony and with our story. Look around. This is the God you know. This is the God who rebuilds what is broken in our lives. I don't know, there are a million people, a gazillion people on the world today, and your God is intervening in all these personal experiences, rebuilding what is broken. This is the God you serve. So look around and take courage, okay? Take courage. Thank you. Thank you for being bold. That's your story, ladies, and you teach with your story, and it encourages me, and it encourages people around us. But we can't teach with our stories if we don't stop and reflect and identify God's activity in our lives. So look at your story and figure out where you can say it was God. Ezra's encouraged by this encounter with God, and now he begins this big task of leading this second group back to Jerusalem. Begin reading with me in chapter 8. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Again, we see a long list of difficult names. I'm convinced when Deb started lining up the teaching schedule, she looked for every list of difficult names and assigned it to me. So we're not going to read that list of names here. Um, I can't pronounce them, and you can't either. Here's what I want you to know. There's an interesting correlation between this list and the list we read in Chapter 2, the list of the first group that went back. They're all the same names, ladies. These are family members. They're related to all the people who went back with the first group to rebuild the temple. There's one new family. I think it's in chapter, I mean, in verse 9, there are a family named Joab. That's the only new family. So God is leading this group to leave Babylon, to return to Jerusalem, and to reinstitute the worship of God and devotion to his law there. So read with me beginning in verse 15. I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned some difficult names. These were men of learning, and I sent them to Edo, the leader in Kasifia. I told them what to say to Edo and his kinsmen, the temple servants, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah from the descendants of Moriah and his brothers and nephews, 20 men. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. Okay. 
Ezra knows his purpose in taking these people back to Jerusalem, and his purpose is to institute a spiritual revival. He knows to accomplish that. He's got to have people to, who can help him teach the law. He's got to have people whose hearts are devoted to God's law. He's got to have teachers. And as soon as he puts these people together there by the canal, and he lines them up and figures out who's with him, he says, no Levites. This won't work without Levites, without the authoritative teachers of the law, without these men who are ordained and called by God to teach. So he develops a plan. He sends these influential leaders out to two specific families and says, we need Levites, we need you to come, and God's gracious hand is all over it. Um, God responds by sending them 38 Levites from two families, and he also sends them 220 temple servants. We really can only speculate why the Levites don't show up here. We don't know, um, so I'm speculating, but you do have to consider in that original group, the Levites were such a small number, 1.5% there. Um, I have to presume that if temple worship has become kind of rote and not very sincere and not very important, then perhaps if you're a Levite, you feel like your job does not have the prominence of the high priest or something like that. We also have to remember, you know, when the Israelites first went into Canaan and each tribe was given a section of land, the Levites were not given land because God said, I will be your portion and I will be your inheritance. So if their culture has devolved to not really honoring that special relationship with God and worship, perhaps serving as a Levite, perhaps that's just all service and no glory. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Um, but we do know from Ezra's actions here, this effort would be futile if they didn't have people who could skillfully teach the law. And so through his wise work, God provides teachers of the law. And next we see Ezra preparing for his journey, and I love that he shows us he's preparing spiritually, and he's also preparing practically, and we see right away God's honor, God's reputation is the most important thing for Ezra. This is of highest priority, so read with me, this is chapter 8, verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. He answered their prayer. I love this. Um, they're embarking on a dangerous journey, and they begin by fasting and praying. I think it's important for you to understand it's about a four-month journey. It's through a dangerous territory with extremely valuable cargo and with a big group of people full of women, children, and probably elderly people. So their route is going to take them along the northern edge of the Arabian Desert, this area was well known to have bandits and warring clans who would frequently um, hide out and lay in wait for unprotected travelers coming by. It reminded me of the story we heard growing up of Robin Hood. And, uh, you know, Robin Hood's always waiting for somebody to plunder. And, and that's exactly the situation that they were going into. But listen to this. By today's measurements, they were traveling with 25 tons of silver, three and three-quarter tons of expensive, elaborate silver pieces, three and three-quarter tons of gold, 
20 very elaborate, expensive gold articles, and articles of bronze that are as precious as gold, meaning as costly as gold. So they tell us that in today's dollar, this was collectively worth multi-millions. That was their cargo. That was their security risk going through an unprotected area that was known to be full of bandits. Um, I thought if we were doing that today, we would have armored cars, we would have armed security detail, we would have an international committee of security task force tracking everybody moving through these different areas. But Ezra's a teacher, and he's been teaching all along, and he's even teaching the king of Persia. He's teaching the king who God is, and he's told him he's mighty and is powerful, and his gracious hand of protection is on everybody who looks to him. So Ezra's taught that to the king. How can he now say, can you send your mighty men with us? Because our God's not mighty enough. Ezra is concerned for God's reputation and God's honor. So he knows he cannot ask for the king's protection. Ezra is doing something important here. He's acting in a way that is consistent with his faith. He's acting with integrity. And that's important for us. When our hearts are devoted to God, we have to act with integrity. We have to be consistent. Do the things we say about God match the way we behave? I thought about this, and I thought, how often do we say, God can do it? God can do it. He can do anything. Um, but it's another thing entirely to trust that God will actually do it. Um, I thought, how often do we say all things are possible with God? God works all things together for good. And then we run around like banshees, full of anxiety and worry and fear because we're not sure God's going to work it out the way we want. Or we run around like crazy women, manipulating and controlling and contorting everything to make sure we get the outcome we want. That's not integrity. That's not consistency. Do the words we claim about God match the way we behave? Ladies, we're teaching, and if we're teaching one thing with our mouth and another thing with our attitude and our actions and our anxiety and our worry, we're crummy teachers, and that's not what God's asked us to do. He's asked us to live our lives with integrity. Ezra has these words from God. The gracious hand of God is on everyone who looks to him. So now Ezra has to take God at his word, and he has to demonstrate faith in God. And what he's doing, he's giving God an opportunity to prove his reputation in the world. He's giving God an opportunity to write the story his way. And God always writes a better story than we do. All right? So he's demonstrating trust in the Lord. But it's not this um, mamby-pamby trust that sits back and does nothing. He's preparing spiritually, and he is preparing practically. So he has the people fast and pray. Um, fasting is this process of humbling yourself before God and going without something that your body kind of needs. Fasting is never intended to manipulate God. Fasting is intended to help us connect to God in prayer, to help us take this posture before God that we're humble and we're dependent and you are mighty and in control. Fasting is a process that helps us recognize who we are and who God is and it helps us grow in intimacy with God. And so that's what they do. They fast and they pray and they ask God to cover them with his hand. But they're also wisely preparing strategically and practically. Um, 
I don't think we have enough time to read this, but you read it in your homework beginning in verse 24. Um, Ezra creates this plan for how they're going to get there safely. He sets apart the leading priests, and he um, divvies up all this wealth, and he charges each individual leader with a, a portion of this wealth. And they weigh it out, and they measure it, and they write it down. So collectively, they're going to protect it all as they journey through the desert. But individually, each leader is going to have a portion that he's responsible for, and he's accountable for it. And I thought this was so important because Ezra really understood the risks. He understands, yes, there's a risk from the outside, from an outsider attacking us and thwarting God's plan. There's also a risk from the inside. There's a risk that we're going to thwart God's plan. Maybe we're going to get greedy and see all those tons of silver and gold and think I can just pocket a little bit of it. What does that do to God's honor? So Ezra wisely creates a plan where they're spiritually prepared and they're practically prepared. In verse 28, he charges them, You, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in Jerusalem before the leading priests and Levites and family heads of Israel. So he's prepared, and he's got all of them living with integrity, and he's giving God an opportunity to prove himself. But he's giving God the opportunity to do it with any method or manner that God chooses. He's not manipulating the circumstances here. And once again, we see this pattern of God's gracious hand is all on it. Let's read about their arrival in Jerusalem. This begins in verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested for three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and sacred articles into the hands of the priests all the priests there that they list. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls, 96 rams, 77 lambs as a sin offering, 12 goats. goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. It's God's gracious hand over everything, protecting them from the outside, protecting them from the inside, equipping them to live with integrity. And it's God working out his purposes through this group of people. We see it in God's mighty and gracious hand. They arrived safely in Jerusalem, and now we're back. All these spiritual high points in the book of Ezra, they always end at the altar worshiping God. At the altar worshiping God. It's a picture of devotion, isn't it? So what do we do with Ezra's life? What do we do with his devotion to God, his calling to teach? I think we have to recognize that we're all called to teach and that God is attractive to the world. And a life of devotion to God is attractive. It's not something we need to be ashamed of. And this idea of God's gracious hand being on people, that is so appealing. We need to teach these things that are appealing and attractive to the world. I'll be honest with you, um, I lived many years as a single mom, and after a couple, mom, a couple years, uh, many of my friends and family members started thinking, you need to open your heart to a new relationship. And I wasn't open to that. And I think in their efforts to lure me into that, they would say, what are you attracted to? 
What are you attracted to, Amy? And to be honest, I couldn't give them an answer. I couldn't come up with anything that I thought I might be attracted to. So things went on for a few years, and I finally agreed to meet a man who was well-loved and respected by many of my friends. And as I got to know him, I was pretty intrigued by his story. He had grown up surrounded by amazing Bible teachers, surrounded by them, professional ministers, professional uh, teachers who taught at the seminary, laymen who had outstanding knowledge of God's word, and he was just attracted to it. And he sat in their small groups, and he met with them individually, and he participated in their Bible studies. He was so drawn, and they contributed to his spiritual formation. And he told me all that, and he's listing off this name, these names of great Bible teachers who've influenced him, and I thought, what does God do with that? And so I just asked him, what is God doing with that, all that great teaching? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, I just decided I was going to live my life this way, and anybody God brought to me, I was going to love them and help them in their spiritual growth. A little light bulb went off over my head. I know what I'm attracted to. I'm attracted to that. This guy was living like Ezra, and that is attractive. Tell me, that doesn't make God look good in the world when we live like that. So it's Valentine's Day. I'm going to tell you, I married him. I'm wearing his ring. That's how attractive this was to me. My mother-in-law's down here, so pat her back. She, she raised an Ezra. But ladies, we can live like this in the world when we live our lives in a way that shows the devotion of our heart. We're devoted to a God who puts his gracious hand on us. That is appealing, and that is attractive, and that is what we can do to accomplish God's purpose in the world. I think this idea of the priest um, is an interesting thing. We don't worship this way anymore. We don't rely on a high priest to represent us before God because Jesus has become our high priest. He's offered the one sacrifice um, that we need, and we're no longer separated from God. But the role of the priest and the role of the remnant... Ladies, it's not obsolete. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have a responsibility to fulfill this role. In the New Testament, Romans 11.5, this is Paul talking, and he says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Ladies, if you call yourself a Christian, you are the remnant. It is your purpose to reveal God to the world around you. And from 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful life. We are all called to teach. And one of the great ways we teach is we show the world what we are devoted to. And ladies... Look at Ezra. It didn't just bless Ezra. It blessed the Israelites. It blessed the nations around them. It's the same with us. When we live our lives devoted to God and teaching that, it affects generations. It affects everyone around us. So that's our calling. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for pursuing us and rebuilding the one relationship that we need in our lives. Thank you for offering us grace and offering us the opportunity to be in relationship with you. This is so great, and it's so awesome. 
And then you give us the opportunity to work with you and to teach, to teach our children, to teach our families and our friends and our communities and our world who you are. You are awesome, you are attractive, and you are appealing. My prayer is that we would live our lives with devotion to you and attract the world to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.